0: Innovators are focused on innovating. They aren't paying attention to what's happening in Washington. And so part of Engine's role also is to educate, right? It's to educate founders. Here's what's going on in Washington. How might that affect you?
1: Welcome to the Regulating AI podcast. Join host Sanjay Puri as he explores the dynamic and developing world of artificial intelligence governance. Each episode features deep dives with global leaders at the forefront of regulating AI responsibly. Tackling the challenges using AI can bring about head-on and enabling balance without hindering innovation.
2: Welcome to the Regulating AI podcast. Artificial intelligence AI stands at the forefront of technological evolution, with experts predicting it could add trillions of dollars to our GDP, but it could also impact our workforce and our national security in a negative way. So how do we regulate it without stifling innovation? The U.S. Congress is currently working to put up a legislative framework around AI that has resulted in multiple hearings, listening sessions, and over 100 proposed bills. Our podcast features insights from various perspectives, from industry leaders, government officials, to advocacy groups. Together, we try to get them to address pivotal questions that are needed to create practical legislation. I'm very excited to have Nathan Lindforce with us today. He's the policy director for Engine, which is an advocacy organization for startups. I invited him on this show as it is very important to get different stakeholders' views towards building regulation and legislation. And the startup small business community absolutely deserves a seat at the table. Welcome, Nathan. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the Regulating AI podcast.
0: Well, thanks, Sanjay, for having me. It's an honor to be with you and appreciate your recognition that startups deserve a seat at the table.
2: Well, since we've started with that first, Nathan, can you please tell our listeners about ENGINE, its goals, and what it stands for?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So ENGINE, we're a Washington, D.C.-based nonprofit. We work with a network of thousands of startups across the country to promote pro-startup, pro-innovation policy. Startups have been innovating in AI for a decade or more. And so they really deserve a seat at the table here in, in this conversation. But we're working on a range of issues beyond AI as well.
2: Well, that's good to hear. Nathan, just picking up on that point, there are people who could argue that companies like OpenAI and Anthropic are startups. They've been all over this issue. So why do you think the startups that you are representing what do they bring to this dialogue? And would you consider OpenAI and Anthropic also startups?
0: Well, let me take the, the second half of that first. I think maybe they're still referred to as startups in the press. I don't know that anybody can credibly argue that OpenAI or Anthropic or others are startups in kind of the true sense, or at least in the sense that I mean, right? OpenAI's valuation puts it in the top hundreds, most valuable companies in the United States, probably don't think of them as a startup, at least not one that doesn't have a seat at the table. They have a seat at every table, right? Especially on AI. They're who policymakers are thinking of when they're thinking of regulation. They're not thinking about the startups all across the country that we work with. And so I think it's self-evident that maybe a few co-founders you know, in a co-working space in Nebraska deserve a seat at the table because they're building something really interesting And needed and not solved by the open AIs or the anthropics of the world. And try to use a few examples of these sorts of companies as we go throughout our our conversation today. But these are the folks that are operating on thin, bootstrap budgets. They're just trying to make it to their next funding round, something of the sort. And so they really have the least room to navigate for if we do a policy framework that doesn't work for them or creates additional costs. And so in those ways, I think they perhaps have the most at
2: stake in terms of existence. Nathan, and we will talk more in this podcast, why do you think those kinds of companies or those kinds of players have not had a stake? Because people always say small business is the backbone of our economy. I hear that point always. They need to be there, et cetera. And I know your organization is not a small business uh, representative, but why do you think, let's say, a company in a co-working place in Nebraska has not had a voice in this dialogue? They don't have big lobbying arms. Is that what it is or?
0: Sure, that and innovators are focused on innovating. They aren't paying attention to what's happening in Washington. And so part of Engine's role also is to educate, right? It's to educate founders. Here's what's going on in Washington. How might that affect you? People go, oh, shoot, I hope we can still do this. Like, how is this going to interact? Or that is completely incompatible with this thing I'm trying to solve. And so I think it's an awareness thing. It's a resources thing. And I think the awareness can be a resources thing as well.
2: I think that's a good point. Moving to Washington, you just mentioned Washington. President Biden on October 30th issued a fairly sweeping EO and executive order that kind of touched on many different points. What, if any, feedback do you have from your perspective on that executive order?
0: Sure. So I think sweeping is exactly the right way to describe it. And I think that's the way that we described it a few weeks back when it happened. I think for startups, the executive order really presents a mixed bag. So I think that will continue to shake out between now and as it gets implemented. And perhaps by the time we'll have more clarity by the time this goes live. But for right now, I think we're thinking about and, and think startups are thinking about the EO in three buckets. I call them the good, the not so good, and the to be determined, the TVD. So starting with the good, I think the includes a national AI research resource pilot that's a good thing for startups. That'll benefit them twofold, that the NAIR, as it's called for short, provide resources directly to startups, but also help build the the talent ecosystem in the U.S. And that's super important. The EO also directs the SBA to make sure that its programs, its grants, and and otherwise are fit for purpose for supporting AI companies, small AI companies. And then I think this is super important, includes a lot of useful immigration fixes to really bolster the AI talent ecosystem in the US, which is really important. And then I think, hopefully, it includes calls for agencies to release guidance on how they view AI interacting with regulations or rules that those agencies are responsible for enforcing. So maybe like healthcare, lending, human rights, those sorts of things, right? I think that's a really logical starting point for Regulating AI, so to use the name of the podcast here. And that's something that we've called for. This is like, okay, name your agency. How are you viewing this? And I think that is a good starting point. Moving on to maybe the, the not so good, I think a lot of folks, us included, are worried about the ways that order are, are going to, with its obligations for you know what's now the leading edge, and maybe it's added toward, towards open source, um, kind of worried about those ways that might lead towards regulatory capture or perhaps slow the pace of innovation. And then finally, on the TBD, the order directs the USPTO, the Copyright Office, to issue guidance on the intersection of AI and IP, a lot of thorny debates there. And so depending on how that guidance goes, could either significantly negatively impact the startup ecosystem, or it could create clarity for innovators and mitigate abuse of the the IP rules and mitigate the threat of potentially ruinous litigation can weigh on startups and then the other item on tbd is in much of the order is concerned with this is government use of ai i think this will be really important writ large for society going forward and how we think about this and how the government takes advantage of ai and then for startups the extent that they're able to, to play a role in that i think a lot of startups have a lot of neat and powerful solutions for provision of public services and government efficiency and otherwise and so The extent that the order makes it easier or induces uptake of those sorts of solutions, I think that'll be a net benefit. To the extent it makes it harder for startups to get involved with government procurement and and only the big guys are able to take advantage, then maybe not so great for startups, even if AI is still being used by government. So I think that's a a long-winded, wide-ranging to say is, you know, we'll see. But I think there's kind of something in this in each direction for startups.
2: Well, that's why it's an E- Oh, an executive order, and it's not legislation. And I think that's where you, when I say you, your organization, and others who obviously will get their voices heard for on behalf of the startups that you are working with. You know, you talked about a couple of things that I would like to follow up. One is about regulatory capture, and basically, and Nathan, you can also correct me. Is when large companies say, "Hey, you know, regulate us." please regulate us. And in many cases, they want the legislation regulation so that the guys coming after them makes it much harder for them to compete. Is that a concern for you?
0: Yeah, I think we're always concerned about regulatory capture. And I think in AI, given the kind of the nascency of the latest frontier in AI, especially like the resources needed, and if we end up with really restrictive or burdensome frameworks around regulation for AI, resources that'll be needed for those, probably especially right for large players to kind of tip the scales in their favor in terms of regulatory environment. You know, I'm not sure I have any particular company in mind, but I do think there has been some kind of cynical lobbying, if you will, on where exactly as you described, you know, market leaders advocate now that they're ready for them, harsh regulations and pull up the ladder. And so I think what we instead need is a balanced regulatory environment. You know, various entry kept low, we're addressing risks, but innovation can thrive. So startups are competitive, they can scale and they can become meaningful market players themselves.
2: You also mentioned another point that I want to follow up with you is the key issue of open source or not to open source. There's you know, people in both camps. What are your views? You seem to be more towards open sourcing. The other side, argues that it really opens up the dangers when you start talking about opening up the weights and other stuff of training data. So tell our listeners, why do you think open sourcing is good for AI?
0: Sure. So, well, let's just back up to to open source, the idea of open source in general. And I think that the place to start is probably like open source software, right? Open source is and has been hugely important to innovation. Open source software is found in 97% of all products. It's in your phone in the computer we're talking in, it's in the the software we're talking through, it's in your car, it's everywhere, right? This is the building blocks of of technology. Really, it means we don't have to start from square zero every time we want to build something new. And what does that do for startups and for innovation? It makes innovation faster and it lowers barriers. Open source software, for example, brought down the cost of starting a software, a technology company by orders of magnitude. And that means that anyone can be an entrepreneur, right? And it also lowered some of the technical barriers. Obviously, there's other tools involved that have lowered technical barriers, but that's a a really key part of it. And I think that open sourcing AI models can potentially do the same for AI innovation. We've said that, all uh, large Silicon Valley VCs have said that, but so have folks like Steve Case as well. I suppose he's actually literally invested in in startups all across the country though so really interested in the spread of of technology startups all across the country and in other places like silicon valley he told the ai forum a few weeks ago he's written about it in the press that open source should be a part of that and now to your point on pretty and other risks obviously those have existed with and we've dealt with them in open source software as well so and it has been a huge problem in the past, whether common vulnerabilities across lots of software can present a huge problem. But I think open source and to make it broader and more available to more people, the, the ability to innovate and use and iterate with the technology, the the more prepared that folks will be to respond to those vulnerabilities. And it also doesn't mean that we can't be clear-eyed about those risks and seek to mitigate them. But I think banning or restricting open source could be very detrimental to the ability of, of startups and others to, to innovate
2: here. Just a final point, and this is just, I don't know if you have a comment, some very large companies who are advocating against it and some fairly well-known AI experts who are advocating against it say it gives access to some very powerful tools that could end up with bad actors, especially when you open up the weights, rating system and the training data. Any response to that?
0: Yeah, it also opens those things up to good actors, right? And so, if we did everything to society to what a bad actor could do with it, maybe we wouldn't have pencils, because, you know, I could stab you with a pencil. I'm not going not gonna to do that. And definitely can't get through a computer screen. Well, some would argue that the pencil is the most powerful tool out there. But, you know, what you can do with something in a negative way shouldn't necessarily outweigh what you can do with it in a good way.
2: Nathan, AI, artificial intelligence, is a constantly evolving technology. What you see is going to be very different. I mean, just from the time ChatGPT came out, and you know, AI has been around for a long time. Now you have multimodal. We are now moving very fast towards AGI. How does a policy framework, and I know you're not a, a member of the Congress or stuff like that, but our legislative body or members of Congress or Washington keep pace with this change? You could frame something today, which could be obsolete a year from now.
0: AI is computing that we've assigned a special name to, right? And so let's think about how we've kept pace thus far, right? So we have laws of applying the analog and the digital to technology and not. And so... I think we have a good base of of public policies that answer a lot of the key questions. Racial bias, for example, discrimination, those things are already illegal, right? And they have been for some time. Doing it with a fancy computer program doesn't negate that, right? And it hasn't, importantly, hasn't stopped enforcement agencies from from bringing or winning cases there. So I think the the question thereafter becomes, how do we ensure enforcers keep pace with the technical expertise they need? To understand and keep up with these technologies, and we can, you know, innovate and um, iterate on top of those laws, and you know, as necessary or as we learn new things. But I'm not certain that we need, you know, comprehensive, full scale changes. That this is something terribly, completely new and ever before seen, because lots of the issues we were concerned about bias, privacy, cybersecurity these are things that have existed for all computing and have existed before that in, in analog. So. I think we have a lot more answers than we think we do, and I think a lot of it will come down to the technical expertise and understanding to respond to it.
1: Looking to make the most out of AI advancements and innovation? Visit regulatingai.org to learn more about how best to optimize the use and integration of AI, and sign up for the Regulating AI newsletter to keep up to date with the latest in AI governance and regulation.
2: Nathan, let's just say, and obviously there are cases already, if the use of artificial intelligence causes harm, whatever it is, whether it's your reputation, deep fakes, or something where a lawyer is using it for some cases, which he should not be or she should not be, as that's been there, who should be held responsible? The developer of the AI software, the deployer, the implementer, the user? all of the above, because this impacts the startups that you work with also.
0: Yeah, exactly. As you said, it does impact uh, startups and it impacts innovation. And I think to to your question, perhaps the unsatisfying answer is it depends, because it does depend. It depends on the facts. It depends on the harm. And for innovation, and I think in the great majority of cases, I think the general answer here is probably that liability would fall on the user. You know, there's a saying, if you want something to stop, assign liability to it. And so if you want AI development and AI deployment to stop, especially at and by startups who don't have a legal department and don't have a litigation reserve, then you assign a liability to those things and to them, and including perhaps for things that users do. And so I think that is is obviously the wrong answer. And maybe to give a non-AI example of this, let's say you're driving your car, Sanjay, you run a stop sign, you hit me. Should the automaker be liable for that? Most people say, oh, well, obviously not. Uh, Sanjay was driving the car. Yeah, the user of the car ran the stop sign. They should be liable. And now you might say, well, hey, wait, cars are supposed to stop at every stop sign. And the automaker should have known that. So they're liable for not making a car that stops at stop signs. Most people would think that argument is something of a bridge too far. Because you, the user, were in control and you, the user, caused the harm. Now, continuing this example, I think there are rare cases, say, the brakes had a faulty part and you tried to stop, but the car didn't stop. Or someone uh, earlier up the, the chain there, clearly, probably liable there, right? So these questions of liability, when they come to AI, when they come to technology in general, are hugely important to get right. Because... Their impact on how innovation happens and who, you know, big companies with huge lead departments or startups that don't have any, the impact on that really can't be overstated.
2: Yeah, and I think you're touching on something which we will have to deal with soon is with the self-driving cars or some of it is already in place with some of these cars and you've seen some incidents, accidents happening. So it's going to be interesting how and where the liability ends up with. But this is going to be an interesting area because, again, it'll impact companies you work with also because where it ends up. The other area that you've also touched on, I want to find out from you is, which I think is also very critical, is McKinsey and other reports saying, you know, 40 million jobs will be lost or so much wealth will be created. All that causes a lot of uncertainty. And even let's just say, you're sure, your startups could benefit from it. We need The talent, the executive order kind of addressed that, whether it's firstly we have to make changes domestically from an educational standpoint and then obviously look globally. But what changes do you think are necessary just to prepare the existing workforce? All your startups can't be just technical machine learning people. Startups come in all shapes, sizes, and forms, but how do we prepare, what policy changes are necessary to prepare the workforce and for increasing AI use?
0: Yeah. So what I've long said, what I've told people up on Capitol Hill is that we really need an all of the above approach to AI the workforce. and workforce. And really what I mean by that is we need to be pulling every lever possible and using all the ways that people do and training and learn to prepare people for AI and to prepare the workforce and to build up the the AI talent ecosystem. And so I think that really includes like the traditional institutional learning, college degrees, et cetera. So bolstering programs with, and institutions with resources like the NARA, for example, so people can learn hands-on with the most recent technology. I think that's a super important aspect. I think it includes government retraining programs. We have several of them. Let's make sure those are actually oriented towards the the jobs of the future and where people will be able to contribute. And I think that means technology. I think that means perhaps AI. And the other thing I think the other lever we should be pulling is on, on private upskilling training, you know, on the job or otherwise. We should be incenting that. And there's a lot of different ways you can think about doing that. Tax credits or otherwise have been floated out there. And then I think one that a lot of people aren't thinking about of late, especially with young people are online learning opportunities and credentials. It was a relatively new thing. I think it would serve everyone if accreditation agencies, for example, created new evaluation systems for these sorts of online programs and certifications. That would do two things, right? That would help employers recognize what is an actual credential that taught someone an actual thing that are going to translate well into their role at their company. And it's going to help individuals who want to learn and and upskill themselves know the best ways to spend their time and and resources and obtain employment in the future. So I think those are a lot of different ways. And I think we should do all of them because this is a a big task that we can begin to meet this need for transitioning and and upskilling the workforce.
2: So you're talking about tax credits, you're talking about reskilling, upskilling, and obviously, you know, just making sure. And certification too. Recently, a few days ago, a bill was introduced in the Senate about setting up certification standards. Now, I don't know where it ends up. But I think because that's a a big area of concern from a Not just economic, but socioeconomic perspective to make sure our workforce does not get left behind, Nathan. So, those are good points. Nathan, let's just say some of the startups that you work with have been using AI for some of this stuff, you know, for working with clients. Should they have a legal duty to disclose that they are using AI?
0: That's an interesting question. And I think perhaps under satisfactorily, again, answer with it depends, right? So you and I, we interact with AI every day. Yeah, I suggested some things to auto sentences in, in email this morning. I understood that that was doing that, right? And I probably received a disclosure when I opened my email account or something like this. So You know, similar things happen for chatbots. I understand that this little guy in the corner of my screen is probably not a human. They might announce that. I don't know. Perhaps the thornier question and and... I think the question that a lot of policymakers mean are like, well, what happens when I encounter AI-generated content, for example, elsewhere, like maybe a picture of the Pope in a really expensive coat? What happens then? And I think that's where things get tough, especially for startups. And I think here, I'm not terribly worried about necessarily the AI aspect. But maybe we're thinking about other technology policy debates around user content and who's liable for it. And so that probably harkens back to our conversation earlier a little bit on liability. So perhaps that's not a very specific answer to your question, but I do think it depends. And I think along the lines of what we discussed earlier, how we set liability sets incentives
2: for... Nathan, you have startups are all over the world and all over the United States. You know, we're talking about regulation, legislation. There are 30 states now with AI bills in there. Should there be a global AI regulation or should it be regional? When I say regional, it could be state-based, country-based, EU is coming up with something, UK, China, India, et cetera. Now, companies now work across the world. So from Engines' perspective, what would you prefer?
0: I think all-stars prefer to do one thing. Thing once, so whether that's a privacy compliance program, whether that's around AI and you know associated obligations, other areas of the law, content moderation is, is another example where there's different rules, different places. Because you know, when startups encounter different rules about the same thing, those are additional costs and additional headwinds. It might be small to use privacy as an example. You mentioned state laws and possible patchwork of of varying AI bills and laws popping up. We already have one for privacy, right? So there's different rules in California than there are here where I sit in Washington, D.C. And if I just go across the river to, to Virginia, there's different rules still. right? And for startups, what does that look like? Well, we've already spent, you know, as a startup, according to research we did earlier this year on privacy, we've already spent $100,000 to $300,000 on your privacy and compliance program. But each time you enter a state with new rules, that's encounter diminishing marginal costs, $60,000 down there, $15,000 for each state of a new thing. And it's often not substantive new things you have to do. It's repetitive, duplicative things that you have to do. And that's really frustrating for startups because one, those might sound like small amounts, right? But that's a marketing budget. That's your success in a a new market. Or that's a new hire, right? So that's success in in building a product faster. Because that's a salary for a year, right? And so these have tangible costs. And so to the extent that you can do and have uniform regulations, that's a huge plus for startups. Now, I will say that obviously a huge caveat to that, if the regulatory environment is uniform, but only works for the big guys, then obviously startups don't want that. And on the global scale, you mentioned the EU, for example, AI conversations playing out in the UK and, and elsewhere. Whether and to what extent those should and do work for startups, I think remains to be seen to some extent, though we have strong opinions about them. And so I think really skeptical that we'll arrive at one uniform set of rules and really skeptical that what's out there will work for startups. So I think what we can best hope for, and I think the world will land at, is rules that are tailored regionally. But I think the best we hope for is that those rules are at least interoperable with other rules in other jurisdictions.
2: Nathan, you've been very generous with your time. So I want to ask you one final question, which you know really gets to the core of our podcast and our organization is, and this obviously applies to the startups that you work with. How can we balance innovation in AI with the responsible development and use of AI, which is the kind of... Threading the needle that everybody is trying to do here. Some thoughts, views for our listeners?
0: Sure. So I'll start with a truism. Incentives matter. And I think for promoting innovation, positive incentives are best. So I think as we've thought long and hard about this, how do we incentivize best practices without harming startups? We've looked to tried and true methods in other areas of the law, privacy, cybersecurity, for example, but how to do that. And I think. One of the things that stands out are the the existence of safe harbors, right? So, in cybersecurity, for example, encrypting your data in transit and at rest is a best practice and it improves cybersecurity. And I think that's relatively uniformly now something that folks do. And, well, how do we incentivize that? To a certain extent, in the negative, people were getting hacked and that was costing money. But states in their cybersecurity and, and kind of breach notification laws and otherwise, your data was encrypted and unintelligible after you're the victim of of a data breach, then you weren't liable for that. And that prevented an already unfortunate situation from becoming worse. So I think these are the sorts of ideas and structures that we could set up. And I think you could imagine this applied to several areas that folks are thinking about, in assessments or red teaming or otherwise that have been floated out there, but which could come at great cost. And I think this is a more balanced way to approach
2: that. Well, I said that was going to be my last question, but I think I lied a little bit because this is the final, final question is, you know, recent polling has shown that the public is very worried and has a little bit of a negative impression of AI. Any thoughts? Why is that, Nathan? And what can be done to... if? It needs to be done to change that.
0: Yeah. So I think a few thoughts come to mind there. First, I think we talked a little bit of, earlier about cynical lobbying, and there's probably some element of that going on, right? They scare people, they scare into regulations. That is harsh, and that works for us as big guys. That could be going on. The second thing that I think is when you ask someone about their individual interaction with AI. And not about, oh, are you worried about AI writ large or some nebulous version of AI? Those numbers improve and and become positive, right? So there's a company in our our network that uses AI to extend credit to folks that don't have a credit score. And obviously, lots of people, you know, if you ask in the abstract, should AI be used in lending? People go, oh, God, no you're going to only lend to, to guys that look like me, right? So you're worried about bias there. That's the overarching fear. But with this product, the founders are immigrants, and they understand that there is this huge gap in the banking system for folks that don't have credit scores. And this is an equity improving use. And that runs counter to historical discrimination. And so people go, oh, shoot, that's a really positive use. And obviously, the folks that are able to receive credit through that, have had really positive things to say about it. So those are the sorts of things that I hope folks keep in mind. And I think that we've tried to really illuminate for policymakers. You've got the big guys in mind. You've got the big scary things in mind. Let's remember that startups are solving problems, that the big guys aren't, and let's make sure they can succeed.
2: So cynical lobbying, maybe the polling is not asking the right questions or asking questions that maybe don't get the right results, I think. And also maybe The good stories are not getting out. I think those are some of the key points that you made. Nathan, this has been very helpful, very informative for our listeners who are on Capitol Hill and policymakers and tech leaders, et cetera. Anything, any last words that you would like to say before we let you go?
0: Well, thank you very much, Sanjay, for having me on. And startups deserve a voice in every policy debate. There's listeners out there. That want to find us you can find us at engine.is that's engine.is and we're happy to be a resource
2: wonderful thanks nathan again for being so open and generous uh, with your answers and with your time thank you nathan Thanks, Andre.
1: thanks for tuning in to the regulating ai innovate responsibly podcast you'll find links in the show notes to any resources mentioned on the show if you're enjoying our podcast please subscribe so you'll never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review